Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're incredibly grateful to our members who support our work and hope that you will consider becoming a member. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code APRIL2022. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another of our special podcasts in which we take a up-close look at a book that we think you, who are our listeners out there, would be extremely interested in. In this case, it is a book by our friend E.J. Dion, uh, which he did along with colleague Miles Rappaport. It is called 100% Democracy, the Case for Universal Voting. It's a very good idea, very compellingly presented. And I was thinking of it, E.J., as I was tracking the French election over the weekend, because the French election this weekend had a 70% voter turnout. And a bunch of newspapers were, this is a huge sign of voter apathy in France. This shows a big disconnect with the election. And I noted it was you know, considerably above what we would consider a high turnout. We got a problem here. Maybe you can frame the problem as a place to begin. Right. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I always enjoy being with you. So we wrote the book, 100% Democracy, because we believe, Miles and I, that the best way to defend voting as a right is to assert that it is also a civic duty and to make it a legal duty. We model our system that with a system we propose largely on the one in effect in Australia, they've had it for a hundred years. So this is not some idea out of left or right field. This is something that's worked in Australia for a century. And under the Australian system and the system we propose, every citizen would be legally required to vote 
I'll explain what the penalties are, which are minor. It's much more a nudge than a shove or anything more that we propose. But we would make voting akin to jury duty as a civic obligation of every citizen. There are two underlying reasons to do this now. The first is a reality that's been true for a long time, but has really come to bite us in the kind of polarization we have in recent years, that the American electoral system is really like a fancy dinner party where you have an A-list of voters, a B-list, and a C-list. And the A-list gets all the attention, and those are the regular voters, the likely voters, as identified by their past voting histories, who get all the attention of the politicians and all the attention of the political consultants. Then there's a B-list of voters who are registered but really don't vote that often. They get very little attention. And then there are all the Americans who aren't registered to vote, the C-list, and they get no attention at all. Now, what does this do? It creates some really perverse incentives in our system. The main job of a party in every election is to turn out as many of their share of the likely voters as they can with some persuasion to voters who may be undecided. And as my friend Miles, my co-author, likes to say, it leads to a politics of enraged to engage because you're going to say whatever will gin people up to make sure that they get uh, to the polls. It also means that you'll take a lot of steps to try to depress the other side's base, to try to say all kinds of nasty things, some real, some made up about the opponent, not so much because you're going to win over their base, but you want them to stay home. A lot of that happened to Hillary Clinton online in both the Trump and Russian efforts in 2016. And then the other voters are just ignored. So you have a kind of vicious cycle where non-voters are ignored, are not given a reason to vote. Nobody tries to mobilize them. And it leads to lower turnout. The second reason we think it's urgent now is because of these voter suppression efforts. As we argue in the book, we should look at the 2020 election as an enormous national achievement. In the middle of a pandemic, because election officials and in some cases, state legislatures all over the country, red states as well as blue states, made voting easier, we got the highest turnout, arguably in history, depending on how you want to count it, certainly the highest turnout in probably 100 years, because A, obviously everybody had a stake in whether Trump won or lost, but B, because we made it easy with early voting, with easy mail voting, with drop boxes. I always like to say I voted in a drop box in front of Walt Whitman High School, which made me very happy because it was the high school our kids went to school at, and also because it's named after the poet of American democracy. So I felt like a poet as I dropped my ballot in. But we made it easy for people to vote. And then what did we do? Well, we're not building on this. In 19 states, they're trying to roll it back. And in fact, right now, uh, you have two Americas when it comes to voting. 19 states are rolling back gains. 25 states are trying to push it forward. If voting is a civic duty, it becomes incumbent on every level of the electoral system, including the election law, to make it as easy as possible for every citizen to carry out their legal duty. When we were researching the book, my great uh, assistant at the time, Amber Hurley, was looking at the Australian website. She ran into my office and said, 
this is really cool how easy Australia makes it to get people registered and to help people vote. And why can't we do this? Well, we can do this if we put our minds to it. And we think a 100% democracy would not cure what ails us. We go out of our way to say in the book, we're not offering, we're not like elixir salesmen in the 19th century selling a potion that cures everything. But we think we would make democracy better and we'd make it work better. I think there's a lot of logic to that. I think it's got some other knock on benefits as well, including theoretically, you know, maybe campaigns could cost less if people didn't spend as much money going out and have focusing so much on turning out the grassroots vote and all of that, because everybody would vote. The focus of campaigning would be more on the substance of the election. It seems to me that the great obstacle to this is that there's one party in America that wants more people to participate, and there's one party in America that seems, as you point out, with 19 states, to not want as many voters as possible to participate. You know, I think we could quickly point out to them that there are plenty of right-wing maniacs and and racists getting elected in in Australia. They shouldn't fear that they would be out of business. Uh, The right in Australia is in some ways just as scary as the right here. But uh, I don't know that that would uh, placate them. How do you make something like this practically achievable? in today's political environment? The first thing is that we're aware of the problems we're up against uh, with this. I I always joke that Miles and I either present as the most honest book writers ever or complete fools because we include uh, our own polling in the book that shows that as of right now, only 26% of America agrees with us on this idea. Although I thought that was pretty good for an idea that's never been presented systematically and that some might see as flying in the face of a certain libertarian streak among Americans. If people won't get vaccinated to save their lives, they might not like this idea at all. What was interesting is in our polling before Trump really went after expanding the electorate, our polling was in February 2020. uh, Republicans were almost as inclined to support this idea as Democrats were. And while we found that 48 percent strongly opposed it, which said to us, that about half the country right now is at least open to persuasion. And by the way, we asked another question where a majority of Americans, uh, 61%, agree with our underlying premise, which is that voting is both a right and a duty. And Republicans were as inclined to believe that as Democrats, which we found very heartening. We know it's going to be a hard sell, so we know we're going to have to begin state by state and in some cases, locality by locality. We are looking for states that have been willing to experiment before Alaska and uh, Maine, for example, with uh, instant runoffs in this transferable vote, Western states with uh, all male voting. We think there's a lot of spirit of experimentation in the country, so we can go there. But We do in the book and have since uh, made a case to Republicans that this is not, you know, Miles and I are both progressive and we're open about that in the book. But we also want to say we're not doing this to rig the election for our side. We're doing this to get full inclusion of the electorate. And we point out that if you look at, ask the question, why did Republicans, even though Biden was winning, pick up? those 10 seats or so in the House that they did, it's because turnout in their base increased very substantially between 2018, a good year for Democrats, 
when a lot of Republicans stayed home in 2020. That suggests to us that they need not fear high turnout. But since we finished the book, we've had the result in Virginia. Virginia's election was held under an election law written by Democrats to maximize participation. There was a huge turnout in the Virginia governor's race in 2021. And guess what? The Republicans, to the dismay of many Democrats, wasn't the result I was looking for, but the Republicans swept every office in the state. I do think this would have the effect of making the electorate a bit more moderate. That seems to be the effect in Australia. And on the whole, their conservatives have been somewhat more moderate than our conservatives. And I know Republicans who quietly like this idea because conservative Republicans, but of a moderate sort, who think it might be easier to pull their party away from Trump. But we really want to make a case that a full electorate will create more legitimacy no matter who wins the election. And we also suggest a lot of things that we could do to invest in our election system to make sure the voter lists are good, to try to answer all of this mostly nonsense attacks on the system, but to make 100% clear that this is a good, honest, efficient system that makes it easier for everyone to vote and prevents corruption in elections. States can do this? I mean, yeah. states, states, states could pass state laws on, on universal voting? Yeah, we have a whole chapter, and we had some This book grows out of a working group that Miles and I organized. And over two years, we worked with democracy advocates, civil rights advocates, uh, academics, including some great lawyers. And we have a whole chapter in the book on why this idea is constitutional. And we're very careful, both for moral reasons and for legal reasons, to make clear that this requires you to participate. It does not require you to choose a candidate on the ballot. And in Australia, it's called donkey voting. You submit a blank ballot in protest and you don't have to vote for anybody. And we do that because we think that's right. We also do that because if you were compelled to pick a candidate, legally that might reasonably be construed as compelled speech. This is not compelled speech, it's compelled uh, behavior, which we do in all sorts of spheres. It's required behavior. Just to make that clear, we add a none of the above option to the ballot that everybody could check. They have those already in Arizona and Nevada. So we believe that it would pass constitutional muster. I mean, who knows what passes constitutional muster with the current Supreme Court? But our lawyers make a pretty good, tough, airtight case, I think, on the basis of case law that it would fly. That means states, it could be adopted in the states. There are 13 states that give localities a lot of leeway. You might even have localities or counties uh, adopting this system as an experiment. If I could just say one thing about the penalty, which is important. In Australia, if you don't vote, you get a little notice in the mail. You can send it back with the ex- your excuse for not voting, like you were sick, your kid was sick. Most of the excuses are actually accepted so that only 13% of non-voters ever pay the fine anyway, but it's a prod. And in our system, we also don't want to create a Ferguson problem for low-income people. So this is not a criminal fine. It can't be compounded with interest or penalties, and you can pay it if you're subject subject to it with an hour of community service. As I say, it's a nudge, and the nudge works really well in Australia. They make it easy to register. 
96% of the people are registered, 90% of them vote. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, one of the other things you talk about is, you know, you anticipate a lot of the objections. And one objection has to do with the free speech objection. Another objection has to do with this libertarian idea. And I the analogy of, of jury duty seemed pretty compelling to me. I mean, there, there's also military conscription. So there are a number of instances where people have responsibilities to the state already. And the case of military conscription, and potentially in the case of jury duty, they're much more onerous than this. Correct. And, you know, we have other requirements in the public interest, as well as your personal interests, like helmet laws for people who ride motorcycles and seatbelt laws. I didn't much like wearing seatbelts, I confess. I had my libertarian streak came out on that, and yet it's probably saved my life. But the jury one and conscription are sort of linking directly to citizenship, which we is what we do here. And there's another argument we try to answer, which we which actually is the one that exercises me most is when people talk about the, you know, the ignorant voter argument. And a lot of, it turns out that a lot of people who talk about ignorant voters don't much like the existing electorate either. Some of the people who most attack the system we propose in the past also say, well, there are too many ignorant voters as it is. Now, the ignorant voter argument has always been used by elites to say we must keep power in the hands of these well-thought-of, well-educated, often very rich people. And heck, at the beginning of our republic, only male, white males with property could vote. But also, there are a, ton, a lot of studies that show that, in fact, the so-called ignorant voter uh, is a myth. The classic uh, work on this is V.O. Key's Responsible Electorate, Sam Popkin's book, the reasoning voter. I love the beginning of E.O. Key's book, which I always like to quote, the perverse and unorthodox argument of this little book is that voters are not fools. And the evidence from, from various academic studies and from the experience in Australia is that when voters know they will be engaged, they actually, they will have to vote. They actually think about and study up on the election, not that they are political obsessives, but most voters, as it is, are not political obsessives, but they care about what they do. Uh, we quote Kim Beasley, uh, the former leader of the um, Australian Labor Party, who more recently was the Australian ambassador to the U.S., and he's been at polling places since he was a little kid because his dad was in politics. And he said, you can tell the voters who are deeply engaged in politics and those who might be drawn into the system because of the requirement but he said he never saw one of the voters drawn into the system like that as completely disengaged. He said they do focus on the election and they do make reasoning, reasoned choices given their preferences. So we have confidence in democracy all the way down. And we have confidence we're willing to put ourselves in the hands of the full electorate and not some partial electorate. Well, indeed, it seems like putting our hands in the partial electorate is anti-democratic. Correct. If the system enforces who's voting and who's not voting, and if it's then amplified by campaign finance system, that by virtue of Citizens United and the fallacy that money equals speech gives more speech to people with more money, 
and therefore amplifies further the 1% in terms of their ability to participate in democracy. And so it seems to me that we're at a potentially at a crisis point because of voter suppression, because of pulling away certain kinds of protections like voting rights, because of the consequences of of things like Citizens United, the proliferation of dark money and so forth. And so this comes at a kind of urgent moment. The, The question in my mind is whether the public has this debate before there's a crisis, an existential crisis for democracy, or after we've seen how bad it can get. Yeah, and as Orban's elections show, if you wait till later and the other side rigs the rules and takes over all the media, it becomes harder and harder to overturn those who have taken power and then used it for undemocratic purposes. I'm really glad you raised Citizens United because in the last chapter of the book, and this is really, we are trying to make the argument for one particular idea in the book, and we were trying to be disciplined about that because we're trying to take an idea which is used in a lot of countries, but has never been debated here really at any in any serious way. And we're trying to push it in the debate. But in our last chapter, we note all the ways in which we need to reform our system. And I couldn't agree with you more that if you look at what the Supreme Court did on the one hand, with two terrible decisions narrowing and gutting the Voting Rights Act, and on the other hand, with Citizens United, they've gone anti-democratic on both. They're trying to, they're making it okay to keep some groups out of the electorate, many of them marginalized and less powerful groups. And with their other hand, they are empowering the already powerful. So we, in passing, say that both of us are very much in favor of campaign finance reform. I have always liked the matching fund system where small donors, 100 bucks or less, say, would you create a a fund? There are a lot of ways to raise the money for that. It's not that expensive, but you could match those small donations at a rate of like seven to one. And candidates could choose to rely on small donors so that you'd be, in my view, if you link those, you'd be democratizing the system by including everybody through our system and democratizing the money system by making small dollars go a whole lot farther. But one of the reasons we want this out there is because it is an urgent and scary time for our democracy. And we think that we should be debating the fundamentals of democracy, whether we really do believe in them as a nation, and what we are willing to do about that. And we think this idea pushes the debate along. We don't want anybody out there to stop doing what they're doing. If you're fighting for voting, the voting, a new Voting Rights Act, if you're fighting for the Freedom to Vote Act, if you're fighting for Election Day registration or re-enfranchising former, the formerly incarcerated, we want people to keep doing all those things because they, con- they constitute what we in our book call gateway reforms, where you basically need to do this to make a system like this work because you can't impose this civic requirement on a system where people are being blocked from voting. That just doesn't work, and we don't want to do that. Well, so I think that this has the advantage that some of those reforms do not, of not seeming to target one particular group or another. Uh, And some of those reforms seem to target it 
What has the traction been like with senior political officials? In the working group, we visited with all kinds of people. We visited with civil rights leaders who have embraced this idea. The the NAACP has endorsed this concept, in fact. We visited with immigrant groups who tipped us off to a potential problem that we try to deal with in the book, where of uh, non-citizen immigrants who might be caught in a vice if they're put on the rolls and then don't vote. And we think the law should make clear that those folks are not in trouble. Election officials are intrigued by it, but they would want a lot of funding. And we should, because they said we would need to deal with about a 30% more voters. But in the book, we argue that elections are one of the things we radically underfund in our country. Because if you're on a town or county council, people are a lot more are going to go after you a lot harder if you underfund the schools than if you underfund the board of elections. And so we think there should be more federal money here. So we want to robustly fund the process of holding elections because they are the heart of our democracy. We've had some mayors who said they want to try it. Two bills have been introduced, one of which we have as the appendix in our book, just to give a model bill. I have to say, I'm very proud the person who introduced it in Connecticut was State Senator Will Haskell, who is one of my former students. And um, it didn't pass, but it created an argument. It's, there's a, a bigger argument. It was also introduced in Massachusetts. Miles is going to start an organization called the 100% Democracy Initiative to follow on our book, where we hope this will come up in a number of other states. A mayor a mayor of a town of California said he wanted to try it. So people are intrigued. We, we've done a lot of talking about this book in the last three weeks with a lot of different groups. And what's heartened us is people ask a lot of skeptical questions, which is great, but they come away saying, they're more inclined to come away saying, hmm, why not? Then why are you doing this? We've gotten a very good response where people still want to argue about it. They want to probe it. But they are they are more intrigued than turned off at the end. It does seem to me, just as one final follow-up, that what you really need is some Republicans who think that this is in their advantage. This is to their advantage. Because you don't want this idea to be seen as a Democratic proposal, this big D Democrat. You want somebody who's in a heavily red state who doesn't get the right turnout in his district to say, you know, if this happened, I would do better. You know, in other words, other, otherwise it becomes partisan and, and won't get the hearing it needs, right? Well, it's so interesting that you say that because we agree with you. But, you know, there is a, a funny uh, yin-yang in making this argument publicly because at the outset, progressives are more inclined to agree with it. Then they ask the question, will this help us? Can you guarantee that this will help us? And we say, no, we don't. Not only can't we do that, but we don't want to do that because on the other side, we do want to make a case to Republicans that a full electorate is one they could still win. In Australia, you know, the example you can use Australia, where in the hundred years that they've had this system, there have been alterations in power on a regular basis between Labor and the, you know, the coalition, which is the conservative coalition. And it was originally pushed in Australia, interestingly, by conservatives who were worried about organized labor and the labor party and thought labor would out-organize them. And then labor took a look at it and said, oh, we'll do just fine under this. And so there's been some pushing occasionally against it, but it holds because both sides see that advantage. So yes, 
We do hope that some Republicans will come along quietly. I've had Republicans say they would like this, as I said earlier, because they think it would lead to a more moderate brand of conservatism that they wish their party were espousing. But what I always like to close with is we borrowed another great idea from Australia. We take the secret ballot for granted. And most people can't imagine voting any other way except by secret ballot. Well, until the late 19th century and the early 20th century, we didn't have secret ballots. Ballots were printed by political parties or partisan newspapers. You voted right in the open, which, by the way, was very good for the political machines. You know, if you sold your vote, they knew you actually cast it for the buyer. And so the Australians tried the secret ballot and it spread state by state in Australia. Jill Lepore tells the story of this in a wonderful New Yorker article that's in our, the the historian Jill Lepore, in a New Yorker article that's in our uh, footnotes. And it came to the United States. It was very controversial. And by the beginning of the 20th century, we adopted what was known as the Australian ballot, which is the secret ballot that we use now. We borrowed from them once. We think we should borrow from them again. We think they had a good idea for, they've had a good idea for 100 years, and we think it would make us better. And we Americans are always willing to borrow good ideas from other people. Yes, indeed. I, I you know, I think, it is uh, a very compelling argument. It leads me off into my own fantasies of 21st century democracy, where you've got biometrically assured digital voting and people don't have to wait in lines and everybody's got to vote. And when you've got both of those things, then you don't need a lot of private campaign finance and you've got publicly financed elections and and you don't have the corruption that we've got. and uh, I think all of those things end up being moderating influences that minimize the impact of the extremes on either side. And I think that can also be very helpful. So I'm I'm grateful for you know anything that moves us in that direction. I think this book, which has been very well received, will do that. I really encourage our listeners who are deeply engaged in issues like this to go out and get the book, read it share it with people, have discussions in your own towns and and cities about this. And um, thanks to everybody for listening. Bye-bye.